Hello and welcome to the Sentiva Software Development Podcast. Today we have a very special episode talking about contract requirements versus user needs. I'm Blake Kohler. My name is Wes Meekum. I am a UX designer here at Sentiva. I'm Andy Shumway. I'm the Director of Product Management at Sentiva. And I'm Sean Holiday. I'm Product Manager. All right, so obviously some very experienced people. Uh, to begin with, we want to talk about the traditional role in project management of trying to manage these two things, right? Contract requirements versus user needs. So traditionally, how do we manage this? Well, if you go back to a classic kind of waterfall approach, right? You have your business requirements that are firmly outlined within the contract. And anytime you want to make a change to those requirements, uh, you'd have a you know, change management protocol with an official change request that gets approved and signed by both parties. Uh, and then, you know, once that becomes an official artifact of the project, you can you know, start with start with that change. Uh, obviously, um, it's not very agile. Yeah, forgive me if uh, I can say that sounds horrible. Yeah, it's it's not not super <laughs> agile. Uh, also, I think. We probably should back up and you can fix this in post edit, but uh, we should probably lay the foundation first to say that we all know that the requirements we get in the contract are not real, right? I mean, we all have enough experience to know that we've got bogus requirements of the contract that somebody put in there because they were dotting I's and crossing T's, but nobody in the world really cares whether or not that's in there. Or not. Somebody will hold you to them. Somebody will hold you to them, but they're holding you to them so that they can dot an I or cross a T. Right? It doesn't affect the users, doesn't affect the stakeholders, right? Also, you have requirements that would really be valuable and useful and absolutely necessary that nobody ever thought to put in the contract. And so that's the that's the problem we're trying to confront with with this whole topic. Any anytime you try and capture requirements and have them written down, it's always a, a snapshot of requirements at a given point in time and it's hard um, all software is built on human systems and human systems change and so it's you always run the risk of that so even even if they were awesome requirements at the time that they captured them by the time you come around to implementing them chances are things may have changed or shifted well, by the time they get to the rfp they've changed and shifted too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Somebody's, last project i worked on at a, at a former employer they spent weeks writing these beautiful, wonderful requirements document, and then it went through three other, you know, hands or three other project managers before it made it to the RFP. And by the time it got to the RFP, it was totally unrecognizable to the person who needed to sign off on it once we were done with the project. And she told me that on a regular basis. Ah, that's because they messed up my requirements. That's not what we really need. So. I think it's safe to say that there's several sources of requirements. There's requirements that come formally in the contract. There's requirements that come from talking with the end users and understanding what their needs are. There's requirements that can come from stakeholders, customer stakeholders that may not be using the software, but might be responsible or have authority over the people who will be using the software and have some objectives, some business objectives that they want to achieve through the implementation of the software. You might also have requirements that come internally from the product manager or from a stakeholder that's uh, you know, within the internal development organization. Um, and the challenge that we have before us is how to align all of those and how do we still end up building a product that we can ship and uh, also um, meet the needs where appropriate with all the different uh, people who, who want to have their uh, say into what the requirements will be. 
that's been one of the harder things with doing <clears throat> software development for the federal government is if you are building something for the end user and you talk to them and you build what they need and then you have the other inputs that you said, like maybe a, a government stakeholder that might have a different reason or need for getting something in the software that's ancillary or different than making it usable and useful for the end user. And so trying to balance that because on, on these contracts, a lot of times you have to please the stakeholders. And But if you don't make it so that users will use it, then that also won't make them happy. And so you got to balance those two things. I remember, interesting enough, working on something for the, the NRC, and they uh, received this letter from a senator, um, Senator Inhofe, I believe is what it was. And he wanted them to make some changes, basically, in our system. Um, and so it was weird to all of a sudden have the stakeholder, quote-unquote stakeholder, who was never going to see our software and was tangibly making our software worse by having these requirements that he's kind of dictated needed to be there. It was a really hard trade-off of knowing that we're building something inferior because we're trying to make a stakeholder happy. And a lot of times the stakeholders and the users, you know, there's a, a disconnect between them. The stakeholder has no idea how the user actually does his or her job, right? Uh, the stakeholder just knows what he or she needs to, to you know, report on, to manage, you know, P&L &P and, and those sorts of things, right? But, but, but there's a, a big disconnect and there's a big gap. And a lot of times we end up kind of filling that gap uh, as, as a contractor and as a, as a product team specifically, uh, trying to, to bridge and bring the two together and, and give both what they need, but also make the software really valuable and really useful to both sides of that equation. One thing it took one thing that took me a while to wrap my head around and to understand and once I did, I felt like it helped when when doing this, is I used to think that end users and stakeholders um, that their their goals could be aligned and that they were in harmony with each other. And a lot of times that these government agencies, they're not, there sometimes might be an adversarial relationship between them. And so one thing that the stakeholder would want is a, something that directly contradicts what the user wants. And so having that understanding of, oh, there's no way to align these two goals because they're contrary to each other, but that's how the, the system was built. That's how they were set up. Um, understanding that helped a little bit and trying to understand the mindset of both of those. It was a hard thing for me to get used to because I'd been used to building software where the end user was the stakeholder, right? Like I'm building software for someone who was paying for it, whether they were a small stakeholder and then kind of a costing or in a large respect, you're building custom software for somebody that was actually just the one paying for it. And it was weird to have these users that, I mean, literally sitting in meetings said, well, I can't believe management decided we needed X thing or put X thing into the uh, the program and realize how much of a nearly adversarial relationship that becomes. I remember sitting in a user interview, we were doing some research and we we're trying to figure out, you know, what the system should do. And usually at the end, you know, usually during these user interviews, we're watching them do their work and we're trying to learn what, what it is they're trying to accomplish. But at the end, we'll usually ask, you know, what's one thing or what are some things that you would like to see the system do? And there's this one user said, the number one thing you could do for me is to get management off my back, huh. <laughs> which meant what management wanted with the application was to have more insight to what everyone was doing so they could be on the, their backs more. But so that kind of gets you back to traditional versus agile approaches, right? Because you know, management loves the traditional waterfall approach where 
we pretend we know everything up front and we write this copious documentation on on everything that's going to do and exactly when it's going to happen and you know they can they can set their watch by the delivery of, of those items and that's management's utopia right we all know that that doesn't work in the real world and and uh modern software development practice particularly from a product perspective is really tends to focus more on a consumer uh segment or a consumer market where the user is the stakeholder and the user is the king and 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 what we're doing is kind of you know meeting both of those worlds and having to you know deliver and and provide documentation to management uh that both on on you know requirements that they need but also on the delivery of the product as a whole uh, but at the same time be agile enough to provide the the value and the benefit to the user so that number one they have engagement and will use the software um, but uh, number two so that you know they they get value out of using the software and therefore provide the data inputs that then feed the management reports that the management is looking for it's, right. it's really hard to get software off the ground without end users behind it like that's a that's a critical part of this even if there are other elements with you know things that have been outlined in the contract or we have management stakeholders if we don't have the end users behind us it is really really hard and maybe even impossible to get a successful software launch if we haven't engaged the end users and to some degree uh, built something that will work for them and I, I think UX in this picture is a like they're um, positioned better than anyone else to really understand the end users and to make sure that we have something built that is specific for them. And we've got different roles on the project. We've got, you know, project managers and business analysts, and there are other uh, people within the project that can help with some of the other sources of requirements. For example, the um, contract being the source of requirements, I think is best facilitated through the project manager. Um, and the project manager also might be good to help broker the conversations with customer executives or management, but the um, you know, UX is positioned uniquely to be the end user advocate and to really understand the end users and to build software that they're comfortable with and that makes their jobs easier um, and ultimately to have software that they can't live without when we go live. Yeah. So we've, We've obviously seen the success from engaging end users and working in an agile, you know, format. There's no shortage of examples of that, you know, across the software world of, you know, agile can help produce better product quicker. I wonder, maybe you have some insight into this. Why is it, it seems like every time we start a new project, we have to teach them and train them. And it's kind of a little battle up front that, you know, that they want to do it the older way, but we usually get them on our side by the end, but it seems like every time we're having to train them. Why is it that the, these federal government agencies are resistant to, to doing that? I mean, surely there's examples of this in the world, but it seems like they're all resistant to it. I think a big thing is actually training, right? We did a project where we came in, we had, you know, 300 pages of requirements and uh and you know we said that we'd like to run this agile and immediately the customer jumped in and said oh yeah we love agile let's do agile that's the best you know great 
And then they immediately said, here's our 300 pages of requirements. <laughs> and, <laughs> and here's 10,000 more pages that are the backstory before we refined it to this. And then, you know, every time we asked for anything moving forward, they'd say, oh, we gave you that. It's in those 1,300 <laughs> pages, you know, or whatever. And, okay. um, and they just really had no concept, no practical experience actually utilizing that job. I mean, they'd heard it as a buzzword and, and they might have even seen some sort of presentation on, on what it was or, or how it worked and had some, some very high level understanding. But what they wanted was they wanted us to be able to do agile with a set set of requirements, a set timeline. And it's right. The, they didn't understand the, the working on the most important thing. And I'll let you add as much as you want to the product backlog. But that means some things are going to fall off the, the, the back end of that product backlog. And they were like, oh, no, no, no. We want to do agile. But we still want to have all the 300 require pages of requirements we gave you. We just want to be able to add to that and keep the same time frame. That's how agile works, right? Uh, I've heard it described as scrum or fall. Like, we want to do scrum because we've heard scrum is great. And we want to do agile, but we want, we want to do the mechanical things of agile, not the philosophy behind agile. Right, that's a good way right. of looking at it. And, and so they they like the, the sprints, the, the yeah. we can add things Let's to our backlog. every day. Yep, like this sounds great, but, but keep every waterfall. Yeah, and, that we have. Right, and, and so it is this interesting balance of when she said something really interesting. We've had to train them. I think if you talk to the government agencies, they would talk about how they had to train us to fit into their. Paradigm and it reminds me a lot. I think of a marriage, right? Of I come into it and uh, and uh, your your wife begins to understand you a little bit better and you understand her better and you spend this this amount of time building a relationship where you understand how to meet each other's needs and wants. And when my wife says she's tired, I actually know what she means compared to when when was when we first got married. And I think that's a very similar thing. There's part of agile that is building relationships that there's just no way to escape. And I think that is a Thing that's severely discounted by people that are just starting into this process. It's a good point. Agile can't really be practiced effectively without relationships. I think it's also worth mentioning that the, um, like we, Agile doesn't mean we don't have requirements. And in order, it's a, it's a delicate balance between having everything scripted out before we even start development for every single uh, detail that's going to be included in the product and having enough of a product roadmap or parameters around what we're going to do that we can build something. We know when it is that we have something we're going to ship and at least have a guess or, you know, a, a pretty good idea of when it is that we're going to be able to deliver this, because that's often a concern for customers too. They just don't want to have an open-ended blank check for an agile project that, you know, it makes them uncomfortable to hear, yeah. well, we're done when we're done. You know, they're, they very much still have or time. Or you'll get what you get, right? Because yeah. that's the other thing is you can say, you know what, we're going to put X number of bodies on this for 12 months, and we're going to work on the most important thing every single day, and you get to tell us what that most important thing is. And at the end of the 12 months, there you go. That's what you get. Well, will I have this? I don't know. It depends on what you tell me is the most important thing. That's, that's a very uncomfortable uncomfortable situation for the client. And there, there's a dearth of product owners, right? Particularly on the government side, but really, you know, on, on, well, I guess most client sides, there's, there's a dearth of product owners what, who can groom a backlog and who can understand, you know, prioritization and who can know that if I go back and do this fifth pass on this one requirement to, to, you know, fine tune the detail that 
we're putting at risk other requirements that we might not get to, you know, based on those priorities. I think one of the reasons there's a lack of product ownership is product ownership implies risk. If I own this thing and it fails, uh, that, that's on me. And uh, unfortunately, uh, the world that we live in and the bureaucracy that's been created in the federal government, uh, people are so risk adverse, they don't want to take that on. I think that's one of the reasons it's so hard to find people that are willing to take product owners. And frankly, for some of the successes we've had, I think a, a big portion of it is finding the right people in the agencies that we work with who are willing to say, I'm going to take this on, even though it may fail and are willing to to accept that risk for the better of, of the project in general. And I think in every case I've been involved, that's really where that the agency has, has shined and come through is finding someone that's willing to take that risk and, and come through and, and be the one responsible. And also be a partner with us. <clears throat> I found most projects, once we get a partner in the agency that wants to work with us and they're kind of like our advocate there, that's when things get a lot better. And they're preaching to their their coworkers or their management about what we're trying to do, and they're on the same page as us. Things go way better than those projects where we never quite get one of those. We always seem to be outsiders. Know. Yeah, that's true. And, and the, sorry, there's there's times where we don't we have a product owner that is not partnering with us but is dictating to us. And that's a, a form of risk aversion in and of itself, right? If, if, if we fail in that regard, it's uh, it's our fault because they dictated it to us and we just didn't perform. Uh, it, it's even more impressive when we found those people who are willing to create that partnership and take on that risk even more. Um, but I, I feel like that is truly what's led to uh, successful projects or people willing to, to, to take that partnership, which probably comes back to a bit of relationship building which I guess is probably a lot of how you manage contract requirements and user needs. I was just going to say, you have to have that person, but that person also has to be the right person, right? They have to have the right approach, the right mentality, the right um, vision for, for what we're trying to accomplish and, and the ability to prioritize and to, uh, you know, march towards that vision and, and, you know, push other things and other distractions aside as well as the right standing in the agency. As unfortunate yeah. it is in these government agencies, hierarchy matters to them quite a bit. And so um, if you have the, that right person that is a, in a position of authority, sometimes they're listened to a little better. That's very true. Well, in the interest of keeping this kind of pithy, if real quick, we can just have everybody share a takeaway that they have. And, and my last takeaway, the takeaway of the week for me is how much of this involves trust and the building of trust, right? For the agency to trust us and for us to trust the agency, a lot of this really comes back to, do they trust that we're going to deliver something of value? And do we trust them that they're not going to exploit our best intentions? Um, and building that is one of the best things that we can do. Does everybody else have a takeaway that they think would be great to walk out here building on yours. That's why we're building everything in blockchain. Because <laughs> it's a low trust it's environment. A, it's, a trust, it's, not, it's a trust thing, right? <laughs> a blockchain is built for low trust environments. We want a high trust environment. Any other takeaways that we have? I thought something Sean said was was pretty poignant and, and worth kind of reiterating that for some customers, some clients, whether that be government agencies or someone else, if you're building software for them, the the perceived risks in agile that you mentioned of we're going to get to 12 months and you're going to get what you get or 
we're just going to go forever. Right. I think understanding that they might have some fears and trepidation about that would help knowing their mentality and how they're trying to, how they're approaching what we're trying to do. And, and since you quoted me, I'll quote you. <laughs> um, sorry. <laughs> um, I was just going to say, I, I think, you know, Wes pointed out that we do a lot of training and, and I, I guess I don't think that's inappropriate. I think that is very much appropriate. And that leads to both success for us and for our clients that, you know, we come in and we train them on agile, we train them on product management, we train them on some of these th sorts of things. And I don't think it's a realistic expectation for us to think that we won't do that. Uh, but I also think we should embrace that uh, because then we can train them, you know, the way, the right way, I guess, and the way that we know to be successful and that we know works for us particularly and, and has worked for our other, our other clients. Um, and so I think, and, and, you know, as, as John says all the time, you know, we're always going to be a services company. And I, I think that's maybe a service that we're not necessarily selling, but it's a service that we bring in our, in our products and in our development. Uh, and it's a service that I think is really valuable. And so we should embrace it. I, uh, building software is hard <laughs> or, and especially in the federal government. And it, um, it takes cooperation among uh, the internal development team. We've talked a lot about that. It also takes coordination with the customer. And the, um, the I think one of the primary roles of a successful product manager is knowing when it is that, or always having their eye towards when it is that the product is shippable. And always having an idea of that, even from the very beginning and early stages of the product project. And there may be times when, <laughs> He's dance time. <laughs> that means we're over time. <laughs> uh, I think there are times when um, things may change or shift in that, and there's certainly room for that. But also, it's the product manager's job to try or to to be driving uh, the internal development team towards that. And while it's UX's role to make sure that we have software that end users are going to love and be happy with. And it's a cooperative effort. There's overlap, um, but it involves trust and working together to come up with a successful product in the end. Awesome. Well, guys, thanks for participating. And this was an episode of the Sentiva Software Development Podcast. Thanks.